the source of love. Our minds reflect back to that day when you entered Jerusalem and the crowds said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, to the Messiah, to the Son of David. And Father, we desire to give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning for what he has done, who he is, what he has done. We thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. And Lord, change our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday to you. Please be seated. My appreciation to our praise and worship team. They do always do a, such a great job. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, again, welcome. Glad to have you here. If you study Jesus' public ministry, uh, it's clear that he is very thoughtful, very intentional about everything that he said and everything that he did. Uh, Nothing really is left to accident or to chance. Uh, I think our brother mentioned that we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21 this morning, so I encourage you to turn there as, as we open. Now, through much of his public ministry, we see this dichotomy. On the one hand, there's an event that occurs that results in a revelation of his glorious identity. But immediately after, the Lord directs those involved to keep it a secret. Now, one example of this is recorded in Mark chapter 8. Immediately after Jesus heals a blind man, verses 27 to 30 say this, And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Another episode is found in Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 2 to 9, which records the transfiguration which was witnessed by three of his disciples. At the end of that episode, the scriptures record this, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. You know, I've always wondered, maybe you have as well, why on the one hand Jesus did things that made it really obvious who he was. And yet, on the other hand, he made such a point of keeping his identity a secret. I'm going to offer my thoughts about this, but I'm going to keep you in suspense until later in the message. So let's go ahead and take a look uh, at Matthew chapter 21. The event that's recorded there is commonly termed Palm Sunday. It's the first day of the week that ended with the Lord Jesus' betrayal, his death, and eventually his resurrection. And although we're focused on the account in Matthew chapter 21, we're also going to refer to the other accounts as well. During his, this final week of ministry for the Lord Jesus, particularly on the first day of the week, there seems to have been a pretty significant change in the policy. Jesus goes from being very private about his identity 
to revealing it very publicly. In fulfilling multiple Old Testament prophecies, he boldly presents himself as Israel's king and as Messiah. Now, the context for what happens in Matthew chapter 21 is established in chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took twelve, the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised the third day. Now this declaration is actually the third time that the Lord Jesus openly tells his disciples that he is going to be arrested, condemned, and delivered for crucifixion. Now, through much of his ministry, the Lord Jesus uses parables to reveal truth to those who are willing to receive it, and yet at the same time conceal it to those who are inclined to reject and oppose him. But here, we see that he is being very transparent and very candid about what's going to happen. And this prediction that we hear here, that we see here, is a confirmation to us that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And it's really one of the many evidences of his divine nature. And the passage we're going to look at this morning has really four fairly distinct elements, and we're going to go through them in in sequence. First, there's the preparation for the ride into Jerusalem, which includes a reference to some Old Testament uh, prophecies. Then we have the, the actual ride into Jerusalem, uh, and the, the greeting by the crowd. We have the cleansing of the temple. And then finally, we have a set of healings and then praise from children, which evokes this challenge from the Pharisees and the scribes, and then the Lord Jesus responds. So all four gospel writers have a record of the preparation for an entry into Jerusalem. Uh, when the Lord Jesus is in this town called Bethphage, which is on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples to go into the next town. We're not told what the name of that town is, but they are to untie and bring back a donkey and a colt. Now, it seems, if you read that, that a lot of the details are missing. Now, can you give me an address? Is it okay just to take someone else's donkey? And what exactly are we going to do with them anyway? These are probably all kinds of questions that we would ask. But the disciples don't ask, and the Lord Jesus doesn't volunteer any details. The Lord Jesus does, however, provide instructions on what to do if they are challenged. Uh, And although it's not recorded here in the accounts that are in Mark and in Luke, Uh, the apostles were, in fact, challenged. And and they gave this response. And obviously, it did the trick, because they were successful in retrieving the cult. An article on Bible.org says this, The little preparation was designed by Jesus to demonstrate his authority. He knew the animals would be there, and he knew that if he said that the Lord needed them, they would be given to them. 
This was a planned sequence designed to be an acted parable, a revelation for those who had faith. After the resurrection, the disciples would look back and see how Jesus had demonstrated in this and the other events that he had authority, that he was in control of the events and not losing control to wicked men or evil times. So we see here Jesus exercises his authority over the possession of others. He doesn't need to ask permission. He's the king. He just lets others know that he is going to borrow these donkeys and that he will give them back. But there's also a really striking paradox here. The king of Israel is dependent on his subjects. Neither he nor his disciples owned a colt or had the resources to purchase one. The only option was to borrow one. But we don't see any kind of anxiety or apprehension with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just the knowledge that there is a prophecy that had to be fulfilled and a perfect faith that his heavenly Father would provide what was needed. Now, once a month, our Trail Life troop uh, goes out on campouts to various locations, usually state parks around the region. There's always adults there providing supervision, but the leadership and the responsibility for what happens during the campouts rests with the older trailmen. We call them adventurers. Uh, They are responsible to plan the agenda, uh, set up the campsite, cook the food, clean up, organize everything, uh, give the devotions, all of those things. It usually takes some time for the adults to be willing to entrust Trailman with that kind of responsibility. Uh, If you're a dad, you know what I mean. The natural tendency of dads is just to do it yourself or make sure you give very clear, step-by-step, detailed instructions. But the objective there is to get them used to making decisions by themselves, to figure things out when they have problems. And the way to do that is to intentionally provide the goals, but not the step-by-step details. So fetching the cold here was a very key task for, uh, for this entry into Jerusalem. And I find it remarkable that the Lord Jesus entrusts these two disciples to do the job. Um, Isn't it marvelous that even at this crucial time in his ministry, the Lord Jesus doesn't lose focus on discipleship? These disciples had a tremendous opportunity to play a role in the presentation of the King and the Messiah to Jerusalem. Uh, They also had an opportunity to, to get a great lesson in trusting and obeying the Lord. You know, but this episode makes me wonder, could he have trusted me with this kind of responsibility? Uh, Would I have simply obeyed and done what was asked? Or would I have raised all kinds of questions and objections? You know, sometimes we miss the opportunity to serve and to glorify God because we don't have even open ears or a willing heart. So in verse 4, Matthew adds a very helpful commentary, which includes references to two Old Testament passages. 
The first one is Isaiah 62, verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And the second is in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, both these passages are about the arrival of the king. They reveal his righteous and humble character, and they also declare that the king is here not to take judgment or vengeance, but he has come to present salvation. And that beautiful term, the daughter of Zion, which is used in both passages, is a picture of the loving and caring relationship that God has with his people. He continues to cherish them and care for them, even though they are often rebellious and reject him. In Isaiah 62, verse 11, that term, daughter of Zion, is used of a people who are awaiting the salvation of God. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, the term is used of a land that is awaiting its king. If you consider these Old Testament passages, it becomes very clear what is happening here. The Lord Jesus is consciously and deliberately fulfilling prophecy. He's confirming his love for Israel, even though he knows that they will reject him. We also see here the courage and boldness of the Lord Jesus. He rides right in to the very seat of religious and political power and very publicly proclaims that he is the King and the Messiah. Bible.org says this, Jesus was proclaiming his Messiahship, his fulfillment of Scripture, and his coming in peace. By this entry, Jesus was compelling the people to recognize him, at least for the moment, as the coming king predicted in Zechariah. So there are some powerful messages for us here as well. First, we see that the king comes to us. We can't get to him. He has to meet us where we are. Second, we see that the king is righteous. Other passages in the scripture remind us that there was no sin in him. Third, we see that the king is humble. Those that come to him must be willing to humble themselves. And then fourth, we see that this king is the only source of salvation. Not physical salvation or external salvation, but internal salvation. Salvation from the power and the penalty of sin. And that's not just temporary, but it's eternal. Jesus is everything that humanity could ask for in a king and more. And that, that's what makes it so tragic that the nation would end up rejecting him. Now, the good news is that the king will one day return and to an entirely different response. Now, what's remarkable about verse 5 is that neither Matthew nor John, there's a similar reference in the Gospel of John, uh, neither of them include the portions of the Old Testament references that relate to salvation. There's no mention here of salvation. Makes you wonder, why? Why was that reference omitted? Well, Pett's commentary 
on Matthew 21 suggests the following. The lack of mention of salvation is a sad recognition of the fact that Jerusalem as a whole will not recognize or respond to the salvation that he has come to bring. In spite of the glorious initial response, Jerusalem eventually hardens itself against Jesus. Uh, We conclude, therefore, that it is not right to say that Jesus was by his act making an offer of salvation to Jerusalem that was not accepted. It's rather to be seen as an indication that the king had come, but that he was aware that apart from many whose hearts were open, Jerusalem was on the whole not in a state of heart that made them ready to receive his salvation. His act, therefore, is a declaration rather than an offer and identifies him as the king coming as a suffering servant. Again, the good news is that salvation is, uh, was then and is now offered and available to all individuals, not to the nation, but it's available to individuals who will receive Jesus as a Messiah and King. And we also know that in a coming day that Israel will uh, eagerly seek for that salvation and they will willingly receive it as well. So verses 6 and 7 tell us that the disciples obeyed and did exactly as they were directed. They returned with the colt. The other disciples put their cloaks on him, and then Jesus sat on the colt and entered into Jerusalem. And all the gospel writers mention this crowd that accompanied Jesus during his entry. And that crowd spread palm branches and cloaks along the road that Jesus took. Uh, that's, how we, that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. Uh, they proceeded and followed Jesus on the journey that eventually led to the temple, shouting these words, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means save or save us. It's a plea for salvation. In this case, most likely, it's a a plea for national salvation from Israel's oppressors. Uh, That crowd probably was not thinking of personal salvation from sin. Uh, Spreading cloaks and branches along the road was a sign of honor, a sign of victory for a king coming back from a conquest. And that term, son of David, is a prophetic term for the Messiah. So what the crowd was doing here very clearly is is declaring by what they were saying that they believed that he was the king and the Messiah. Uh, John chapter 12, verses 17 to 18, gives us some insight into this crowd. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So what we see here is the resurrection of Lazarus by the Lord Jesus Christ was actually orchestrated to prepare Jerusalem for the entry of the king. See, nothing is done by accident, nothing is done by chance. So verses 10 and 11 tell us that the city was stirred, which means they were agitated, they were worked up. The crowd, the greeting of the crowd, really grabbed a lot of people's attention. The noise and the commotion was probably quite noticeable. 
And the question on everyone's mind was, who is this? You know, what kind of dignitary would merit this kind of reception, this kind of commotion? Now, only Matthew records this agitation by the crowd and this question. And he's, he also records the response by the crowd, which is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, that response there is both inaccurate and somewhat disappointing. Now, this is the same crowd that had observed the Lord Jesus do an incredible miracle in Bethany. They're the same ones who had greeted him on his entry into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna, the son of David. But here, when they're questioned by others and given an opportunity to give a witness, they only go so far as claiming that he is a prophet. It seems they lack the boldness. They lack the courage to be able to acknowledge him as their Messiah, as their king. Um, it's not clear what caused this hesitation, but we do read in John chapter 9, verse 22, that the Jewish leadership had agreed that if anyone were to declare Jesus to be the Messiah, they were going to be put out of the synagogue. So it's possible that they were concerned about being expelled from the synagogue or perhaps even greater persecution, or perhaps they had some lingering doubt about his identity. This, is, this lack of courage may be one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus directed people not to reveal his identity throughout most of his ministry. He knew that the emotion and elation of discovery uh, would wear off. But Jesus wasn't disappointed and he wasn't discouraged by that lack of boldness. He knew that his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, was going to make the difference. The Spirit's indwelling would give the disciples the boldness and the courage that they needed to be the witnesses. You know, that response by the Lord Jesus is very encouraging to me. There are times when God has given me opportunities to bear witness for Jesus, to tell others who he is, what he can do for them, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. But many times I've not taken advantage of those opportunities, and really the reason why is I haven't been walking in the Spirit. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God indwells every believer, and he works in every believer. But we make the choice about whether we're going to walk in the flesh or in the Spirit. Those who are walking in the flesh have their minds fully absorbed on the things of the flesh, material things. And so when the opportunity presents itself, they won't have the presence of mind, they won't have the mental focus to be able to give a witness or a testimony. In contrast, those that are under the control of the Spirit will have the courage to live out their convictions. You know, when you're in tune with Him, He not only gives you the opportunities but he also gives you the focus, the boldness, and the courage to be able to witness for the Lord. So in verses 12 and 13, we see the king exercising authority in the temple. 
And this event also uh, fulfills a prophecy from Malachi 3, verse 1, which says this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Jesus references two Old Testament passages in verse 13. The first is from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The second is Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, the temple was intended to be a house of prayer, but had become a center for commerce and for corruption. Now, the money changers were conducting business in a place that was intended for spiritual worship and edification. And they were also, not only that, but they were dishonest. They were cheating people of their money. And so the temple had become defiled and unfit for spiritual worship. In cleansing the temple of this corruption, the Lord Jesus restores it to being fit for spiritual worship. This is exactly what you would expect from the Messiah, to make God's house fit for his habitation. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 14, after cleansing the temple, he qualifies the worshipers and makes them fit to enter. Uh, The website Bible.org says this, The lame and the ill could only go so far into the temple precincts, that is, to the court, to that particular court. So Jesus met them there and healed them, making them spiritually and physically fit and qualified to go into the temple area that had been off-limits to them. Jesus, again, was showing that a greater than the temple was here. Both the cleansing of the temple and the healing of the people shows Jesus' authority over the temple and over those who ran it. Second, Jesus was showing that he alone could make people whole so that they could enter the sanctuary. He was God's remedy for man's ruin. He was a provision of sanctification for the sins and the infirmities of the world. Verses 15 and 16 record the response of the Jewish leadership. Now, they only had two options. They they could either acknowledge him as their Messiah and King, or they could reject and denounce him. Um, If they acknowledged him as Messiah, their authority was essentially void. They were afraid of losing their power and their position And so the only option, they exercised the only option that they had, which was to challenge him. But notice that they do it in a very subtle way. They ask this question. Do you hear what these children are saying? These children are praising him and calling him the son of David. So they say, do you hear what they're saying? They're calling you the Messiah. They're calling you the king. Shouldn't you be correcting them? Or do you agree with what they're saying. Their hope was that that he would somehow make a verbal statement that he was, in fact, the Messiah, or or fail to refute what they were saying. But the Lord Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. Instead, he responds 
by quoting from Psalm 8. Verses 4 to 6 of that psalm are prophetic about the Messiah. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. So the Lord Jesus refers, reaffirms his identity without openly declaring it, but at the same time, he points out that they don't even really know or understand the scriptures in which they claim to be experts. If they did, they would recognize that he's the Messiah. And if they had real courage, they would acknowledge it. Now, the reaction of this leadership perhaps was another reason why the Lord Jesus delayed until the end of his ministry to make a a, a real public revelation of his identity. Uh, He knew that there would be uh, a challenge and a rejection, and he wanted to complete the ministry and give a full and complete case for his identity before that happened. So five days after his entry into the Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. It was facilitated by Judas, one of his apostles, or one of his disciples who betrayed him. Uh, Judas was obviously more interested in material prosperity than he was in his allegiance and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Um, And this is my opinion, but Judas must have had some doubts. Uh, It's hard to imagine that knowing and being convinced that he was the Son of God, that he would betray him in that fashion. That betrayal, along with the arrest and the crucifixion that, that followed, would challenge the faith of his disciples. They would struggle to understand how the Lord Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen, and being in control, would allow all this. What we see here is that the events of Palm Sunday were orchestrated, were specifically and deliberately orchestrated by the Lord to establish a couple of things. One, he had complete knowledge of everything that was going to happen in Jerusalem. Two, he had complete authority over everyone and everything. And three, that he was perfectly in control at all times. Now, it was really important to establish that before what happened at the end of that week because the disciples would definitely question Uh, when they witnessed what happened with his arrest and his crucifixion, their confidence was probably annihilated. But after he rose from the dead, they remembered, they reflected, they thought about what had happened during that week, and they realized that he never really lost control. Now today we begin Passion Week, Palm Sunday. I would encourage each of us to read through the passages that happen, the events that happen during that week, during Passion Week. And contemplate, really, what the Lord Jesus is saying, what he is doing, and why. What is the purpose? What is he communicating? Because they're really profound things. And really, I would challenge you, I think, you know, if we look at those accounts, we can only come to the conclusion 
that the apostles did later on. He is in control. He was in control. And, and if that's the case, then, then that's really an amazing thing. You know, knowing everything that was going to happen, having complete authority, having complete control, he permits wicked men to arrest him, to condemn him, to crucify him, to kill him. And while that seems like a tragedy, it was also absolutely, in the plan of God, it was absolutely necessary. You know, without it, we would not have salvation from sin. We would be eternally condemned. We can all be thankful that the one who had complete authority, the one who had complete control, was willing to subject himself to the humiliation of torture so that we could be redeemed. Have you received his gift of salvation? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus for eternal life? And if not, what are you waiting for? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the magnificent way in which the Lord Jesus revealed his identity. We thank you that he did that, and we thank you that it's recorded for us in Scripture. We have no doubt that he is the King of Israel, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Son of God. And, Father, for those who have made a choice to trust him, to bow the knee to him, we know that we have eternal life. But for those who are listening, who have not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray that they would be swayed, they would recognize the overwhelming evidence that he is who he claims to be, and they would trust in him for eternal life. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.